All right, well, I also want to wish a happy Father's Day to everybody watching uh, online, everybody that's here in the room today. Grateful for all the dads, all the men. Uh, and I'm grateful for the guys who woke up this morning and said, hey, for Father's Day, I'm going to get my family to church today. Uh, you're a great example, great leader in your family. And so thanks for doing that. There have been, I think, probably four moments in my life that I can identify where I believed that maybe the world was coming to an end. I don't know how many moments you have like that, but I thought of four. One of them was when I was seven years old. My parents had the news on. It was, I was sitting in the back of a car. I can remember it was dark outside, and I was listening to the radio. And it was 1993, and there had been a terrorist attack at the World Trade Center in like a parking garage. And I was listening to the news, probably hearing the word terrorism for the first time in my life. And I thought, this must be close to the end. Like, this must mean that uh, the end is coming. I think around that time, the Left Behind movies were also in circulation, uh, which was just adding fuel to my fire about the end of the world. Uh, another one was one that we probably shared, many of us, which was Y2K. Uh, coming in, some of you I know, you weren't even born then, we're aware, but uh, many of us were. And uh, I was at an all-night youth rally, and we were uh, celebrating the turning of the new year. My birthday's on January 1st, and I thought, I don't know if I'm going to see my birthday. Like, this is probably it. I remember, you know, as the night went on, beginning to wonder, like, so if this is really the end of the world... I failed to understand, is God on Eastern time, Central time, or Mountain time, you know? <laughs> if he's coming at midnight, or is he on Australia time? Like, I don't actually know when he's coming. I should just be ready. Uh, another was 2012. I don't think I really fell for this one, but the world was kind of freaking out about the end of the Mayan calendar, right? I think there was an end of the world movie called 2012, uh, and people were thinking, maybe this is the end because time is about to run out, and so there's kind of this hyper-awareness of the end times, the end of the world. And, and then probably most recently it was 2020 as things really began to unfold and you started to feel like, man, there's a lot of crazy things happening. It feels like everything is kind of chaotic. People are getting at each other. You just had to kind of stop and wonder, like, are things ever going to be normal again? But really, is this the beginning of the end? And I don't know about you, but there's been moments like that for me where I've thought, is this the end? Is is it actually all coming to a conclusion? And, and even in some of those moments, I really stressed out about them, right? You know, really contemplated my life at the end of 1999. Some of you partied like it was 1999 because you didn't know what was coming in 2000 and, and stressed over those moments wondering what was going to happen. And what have we learned from that? We're still here. So uh, it didn't happen. It didn't come to pass. And I'm not saying that it never will but I, I think that I expended a lot of energy over something that wasn't to be at that time. And if we want to look really at what will it be like when the world ends, then we look to the book of Revelation. It contains the majority of the end times literature in the Bible. You can also look at Daniel, especially Daniel 9. Uh, you can look to Matthew 24, which we'll read today, where Jesus teaches on what it's going to look like uh, at the end. But I want to give you this thought today that uh, when we read the Bible, the, the book of Revelation was written to the church in A.D. 90 or 95 by a guy named John who had been a pastor of the early church. And many times we read the Bible and we read it as if the Bible is written to me, right? You've heard like, the Bible is God's love letter to you. Well, it's not really. It's, it's God's love letter about you and about your life, but it's not to you. Revelation was written to the early church in AD 90, but the Bible is for you. 
So while it's not written directly to one generation of the church, it is written for us. And so every book of the Bible should be read in what does this Bible mean, not just for one generation, but for every generation, every age of the church, every part of the global church throughout the generations. And as we read Matthew 24 and Revelation and Daniel 9, we should read and interpret the Bible by the Bible. But many times when we talk about end times, we try to read the Bible according to current events. Like I read this thing in the newspaper today, I'm going to open up Revelation and try to figure out what's happening in the world. That's not a great way to understand scripture and really to understand the last days. We interpret the Bible by the Bible, not by current events. In fact, some of us have strong inclinations today about what we think the end of the world will look like, but it's not because we've opened the Bible and interpreted the Bible by the Bible. It's because we've watched Left Behind and transposed that onto the Bible. <laughs> you know, or we see certain world events happening and, and we read them into Scripture rather than just reading the Scripture for what it is. Here's what I mean by interpreting the Bible by the Bible. The book of Revelation alone has 500 uh, times that it alludes to the Old Testament. You might say, well, that's a lot. It is a lot considering that Revelation is only 400 verses in itself. So over more than once per verse, the, the, the book of Revelation alludes to symbolism or to things from the Old Testament. And I'll show you some of those things today. But for example, the Revelation talks about lampstands, and we know that's symbolic of churches. Uh, Revelation talks about the serpent, and we know from the Old Testament that that is symbolic of Satan. Uh, Revelation talk about, talks about locusts, and uh, locusts are armies that are opposed or hostile to God. The Revelation talks about Babylon. We see Babylon as a fallen world system, and it's symbolic of the fallen world system that we see today that many adhere to. Uh, today, we look at a woman in Revelation 12 and 17, and we see that the woman is symbolic of the church. And in Revelation 12, she's the true picture of the church. She's beautiful, both on the outside and on the inside. She's the bride of Christ. But in Revelation 17, she's a, a counterfeit of the real thing, and she's actually symbolic of the world. She's beautiful on the outside, like many things of the world, but she's rotting at the core. And this is the symbolism of what the Bible calls us to when we read Revelation. Jesus would teach his disciples in Matthew 24 about the last days. These disciples would become the apostles of the early church. Uh, there's seven churches in Revelation that John, uh, best friend of Jesus, walked closely with Jesus, uh, referred to him as somebody that Jesus himself is somebody Jesus loved. He writes these letters to seven churches. Uh, Peter writes about the last days. Hebrews writes about the last days. Uh, James writes about the last days. And here's what all those churches and us today have in common. We all believe that we were living in the last days. So how is that from the early church, the apostles, all the way through to us today, 2,000 years later, that we all believe we're living in the end times? Was God delayed? Like, did something happen and God said, yeah, I meant to come back in 250 BC, but this and this happened, so now I'm just kind of hanging out. What, did God lie? And they believed a lie and God is not actually returning? Or were they wrong in what they interpreted that God was about to do? Which would mean that scripture 
itself is wrong. Here's what I personally believe, and I'm going to try to give you a lot of different ways that you can view Revelation today, but I believe that the last days were initiated uh, when the age of the church began. That when Jesus was resurrected from the grave, he initiated, he kicked off the last days. And so what is actually true uh, to me is that both the disciples and us over these last 2,000 years have all actually been living in the last days. And uh, you might say, well, 2,000 years is a long time for last days. Uh, to be going on. And well, here's what the Bible says in 2 Peter 3.8. The Bible instructs us that to the Lord, a thousand years is like a day. So when Jesus said you're living in the last days, a thousand years is like a day. Time is not the same uh, with the Lord as it is on earth. So I believe that the last days kicked off in the first century and are still occurring today. And that's why I believe that we are accurate and the apostles were accurate and the early churches were accurate in believing that they were living in the last days. And in a few moments, I'll tell you how we can truly know when the end is near. We're going to do that by looking at Matthew 24. If you have a Bible, I'm in Matthew 24. Three. I've told you, man, I've loved this series. I hope that you've appreciated it. Uh, I want to thank Pastor Bryce and Pastor Corey and uh, Pastor Nate for the great messages that they gave. Uh, while we were gone, Janae and I were in Texas, uh, we had the opportunity to coach uh, some churches and just help them uh, over these last couple of weeks. I'm thankful that we get the ability uh, to do that. We also endured 107 degrees, not counting the heat index, which basically melts your face <laughs> right off. I looked at all them Texans and I said, when, when y'all come to North Dakota, I don't ever want to hear again about how bad our wind chill is. Because when the wind chill's bad, I put on a jacket. When the heat index is Texas is bad, there's only so far you can go, you know? It's easier to warm up than it is to cool down. That's just my opinion. But anyways, all right. So Matthew 24, verse 3, it says, As Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus, we know you aren't going to tell all those people, but tell us, you know, what's going on. We're coming to you secretly. And Jesus answered them. He said, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must Take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation. They will put you to death. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Come on, if you're in the church, you need to say amen. Because that's hope for you. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom of God will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So I look at that and I say, so have the birth pain started or not? We stand here today as a people who have many different forms of Jesus that are being preached in our world today. We stand here as a people who have already endured the atrocities of the Dark Ages. We have already seen the martyring of 
nearly all the apostles of Jesus, as well as millions of Christians around the globe, simply on the basis of the fact that they are followers of Jesus. We have endured the atrocities of the Holocaust. I would say there have been birth pains. That we are in the end, we constantly live in a world, it's not when earthquakes are going to start to get worse, we're setting records all the time. It's not a matter of if nations are going to rise against nations, it's a conversation all the time about that happening. And I think at times the church has developed an unhealthy obsession with trying to identify events and, and transpose them on to scripture, trying to predict what's going to happen. But Jesus really gives us one strong indication of how we know when the end will come. He says this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. He's not talking about national boundary lines, every country. He's saying by nation, he's saying it will be preached to every people group on the planet. If you want to know how far we are away from the return of Jesus, then how many people groups have yet to be reached? That's really the indicator. How many people really, and so let me just say this, the church needs to be less obsessed with trying to figure out how do we stop bad and evil and persecution from happening? How do we keep the world slowed down and at peace? And we need to become obsessed and fixated with how do I tell every last nation and person about the Lord Jesus Christ? We need to become focused. On what Jesus says, the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. If God has delayed in the end coming to us, it's because the church has not reached every nation and every people group with the message of Jesus. Friend, the goal of the church is, and the goal of your time with the Lord is not your comfort. It is not to figure out how bad is it going to get to me as a follower, get for me as a follower of Jesus. The goal of the believer is to remain meek even in persecution because it will come. The goal of the believer is to be bold in sharing our faith even when we're intimidated. Our prayer should be, God, give me the endurance to endure persecution. And God, give me the passion to reach people for Jesus. That should be our goal, not obsessing over timelines and world events and trying to figure out, is this or that's distraction. It's enduring persecution and evangelizing or sharing Jesus with the world. This is what the Bible tells us are the signs of the end. And there's times, friends, if I'm honest, where the church endures persecution and it's self-inflicted. Like the world scoffs at the church, and I'm not, I'm not going to be cynical. I lead the church. Like I take responsibility. But there's times where the world scoffs at the church, and, and it's because of, of self-inflicted things that we've done that have caused the world to not trust the bride of Christ, to not trust what we're teaching or what we're preaching or what we're all about. For example, for a long time, we've obsessed over and predicted the end based on taking current events and daily news cycles and allowing it to inform our eschatology or our theology about the end of the world. We have politicized the end of the world. We've chosen errant dates and timelines and told everybody in the world, the judgment of God is coming. And our claims about the mark of the beast have really caused the world to scoff at the church. Because I don't know if you've noticed, but people would pick dates and say when the end was coming, and then that date would come and go, and I never heard anybody recant. (laughs) And so I was wrong, you know? In fact, many times it's, let's amend the book and sell more copies with a different date. Not to be cynical, but that's so much of what the narrative has been 
around end times theology and the approach of the church. But listen, we must interpret the Bible by the Bible, not try to interpret the Bible by current events. Interpret the Bible. Let me, I mean, if I could just go there today graciously, can I just interpret this uh, in the context of COVID-19? Many people ask me, Pastor Josh, was COVID from God? Okay, well, I don't believe that God is the source of sickness and disease, so I would say no. Well, then is COVID from the devil? Well, not entirely, because in the words of David Campbell, God is not a geriatric old man that can't intervene in the things of the world that's locked in heaven and can't. So it it obviously wasn't the devil getting full control to do whatever he wanted to do. And so then what was it? And here's my thought, that there's moments where it seems like God pulls back his hand a little bit and allows things to happen both in our lives and in our world that produce a shaking in the church and a shaking in the kingdoms of the world. Why? Because whenever there's a shaking, believers become more consecrated to the church. They become more consecrated to Jesus. And, uh, and, and listen, it's so popular right now. It's annoying. And, and they, they talk about how Christianity in America is just going away. You know, now it's only 80% of people that believe in a God, you know. And I say, I don't think that's true. I think con- convictional, committed Christians have stayed committed to God in their faith. It's people that called themselves Christian because it was socially beneficial who now have realized, oh, it's not really socially beneficial anymore, so I'm going to stop calling myself something that I probably never was that are really changing the percentage. It's that the church is actually being refined and purified, that it's being consecrated to God even through our shaking, and that is not a bad thing. That is not a bad thing for the church to endure. See, times of shaking consecrate the church, but times of shaking also shake the world. They cause people to say, man, I've been putting all my trust in the idol of science or the idol of medicine. I've been putting all my trust in the the idol of world government. And now that these things are shaken, and I don't know if I can count on them, it causes the world to start searching for what is actually true. This is why I'm telling you this, because if if the church is distracted away from soul winning, which is what we're actually called to do in the last days, and we're fixated on other things, then the moment will come where the world is searching for answers and all that the the world is going to hear is us picking dates and our lack of love for people. We're not going to be as on mission as we're called to be. This is why I believe the focus of the church has to shift into saying, what am I called to? Endure persecution and evangelize the world. Endure persecution, even the mild persecution that we experience today. Endure it, follow Jesus faithfully, knowing that I don't have to be afraid of those who can kill my body. I live in a holy fear of the one who has the power to throw me into hell. Those are the words of Jesus. That I I can endure anything, even if they kill my body. Death is but a doorway cut into sod into the very presence of God. I can endure. And then sharing this faith in Jesus with a hurting world that's around us. Times of shaking should not be rejected. They should be embraced because they really bring a purity to our message and to who we are as the church. People have asked me, Pastor Josh, was the mark of the beast revealed during COVID? If you don't know what the mark of the beast is, it's probably thrown around more than uh, a lot of other end times theology or discussions. Revelation 13, 17 is where it comes from. It says that there will be people that cannot buy or sell anything unless they have the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number 
of its name. And so people have speculated for a long time about what is the mark of the beast. All we really know about it is it, it must be something that you have to have in order to buy and sell goods. And so throughout history, every time something has changed uh, around the nature of buying and selling goods, people have been like, hey, it's the mark of the beast. So it happened with barcodes. Like, you put barcodes on food, and it's like, that is the mark of the beast. Barcodes are bad. Okay, then we all got used to barcodes, and we said, okay, I guess it's not barcodes. <laughs> and then it was credit cards. Like, oh, no, they're trying to get rid of cash. You're just going to swipe, and you're going to have to carry this card. So must, and then we all got used to credit cards. And it wasn't that anymore. And then it became the COVID vaccine, even masks that, oh, they're not going to let you buy stuff unless you have this or have that. Now listen, it became microchips for a while. I'm not saying you should ever put a microchip in your body. I'm not saying you have to get the COVID vaccine. That's not at all what my message is today. My message to you today is that perhaps the mark of the beast isn't what we thought it was. And, and sometimes by just pointing a finger at something new that then becomes normal later on, we've actually allowed the world to scoff at our theology in just trying to get people to think or to believe what we want them to think or to believe. And I, there's reason behind this because all these things were associated or could be associated with buying and selling goods. But now listen, let's come back to camp. Revelation is written by John. John was an early church overseer. He was writing to seven churches in the midst of present tribulation and struggle and difficulty, trying to encourage them to continue to follow Jesus. So John is writing to these people in AD 90, and he's saying there's going to be a Mark that, that you'll have to receive, and, and if you don't, you won't be able to buy and sell goods. What was happening in the churches where John had pastored is that there were trade guilds that were being developed, and people who professed to be followers of Jesus who are marked by the mind of Christ and the deposit of the Holy Spirit living in them were not allowed to buy and sell and purchase goods in these trade guilds because they were being persecuted as Christians, as followers of Jesus. This was not something he was projecting into the future, I believe, for some future generation that was going to get a credit card and therefore go to hell because they got a credit card. This was him writing to believers at that time saying, hey, you're enduring this persecution be I stand before you today, right now, in this place, as a marked person, right? Because 2 Corinthians says that God has put his seal on me. That he's put the deposit of his Holy Spirit in me. I am marked by Christ Jesus right now in this moment. It's, and is it a marking on our body? No, that's Old Testament. It is a marking of our, of our, of our spirit. It's a marking of our mind, which is why I believe the mark was placed on their head. It's a marking of your mind, and it's a marking on your heart. And so when we look at what is the actual mark of the beast, I, and you read it, you decide your own opinion with fear and trembling of what this actually means. But I believe that the mark of the beast is actually people who in the last days and throughout their lives uh, are marked not by God, not with the Holy Spirit living in them, but are marked by the false trinity, right? There's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then the 666 false trinity in Revelation, the beast and the Antichrist and Satan himself. And they're marked by this thinking, this way of living. Their heart is not for God. It's for this other way. And that's what the Bible is talking about when it says they will have the mark of the beast and Christians will be excluded because uh, of their persecution that they're enduring at that time. This was John's audience that he was writing to. They were already experiencing this kind 
of persecution. They would have known exactly what he was talking about uh, in saying they had been marked as followers of Jesus and not allowed to buy and sell goods. And I believe this is what he was explaining about what would come around again uh, at the true end of, end of days in the kind of persecution that the church would be experiencing. This is not a self-inflicted kind of persecution. I'm just going to jump really deep in. If I lose you in the next 10 minutes, uh, you know what? Just tread water for a little bit, and I'm going to come back for you. (laughs) It's okay. Take notes, go home, read it on your own, and and ask God to reveal uh, himself to you. But if you you jump into an interesting, is it okay? Are you all good? Everybody's good? Online, you're good? Okay. I, I don't know, but I think you're good. There's a, an interesting story in Revelation 11, and it's the story of the two witnesses. Some of you are maybe familiar with the two witnesses. Others, this is like brand new stuff to you. That's totally okay. But in Revelation 11, uh, chapter, or verse 7, the Bible talks about two men in the last days who would be on the earth, and the Bible says that they would have incredibly po- incredible power. They would be able to shut the heavens so it wouldn't rain. They would do miracles, signs, and wonders. It says the whole world is going to be aware of these two witnesses and, and what they have, and they're actually going to hate them because of the power of God that works through them and what they're able to do on the earth. And uh, what will eventually happen, I think it says it in verse 7, when they finish their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack the two witnesses and overpower them and kill them. The Bible says the whole world will see it. They will lie in the street for three and a half days. And then after three and a half days, the breath of God will enter them again. They will stand up and their enemies will be afraid. They'll be terrified by them. And then this is what it says in verse 12. Then they will hear a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. It'll probably be more like, come up here, you know. (laughs) And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. Now, let me give you two thoughts about the two witnesses. One uh, is uh, less of a symbolic understanding of the witnesses and more of a literal view, that these will be actually two men who will come back to the earth. Some believe that they'll be Enoch and Elijah, two guys who are in the Old Testament uh, that never died. They were just taken to heaven without experiencing physical death. That that's why they didn't die in the Old Testament, because they will return as the two witnesses described Uh, in Revelation. Some believe it'll be Elijah and and Moses that will show up and they will be these witnesses on the earth. Another view is that this is a more symbolic approach to Christ actually, to God talking about what's going to happen to the church in the last days. That the church will be the witnesses that are on the earth and what happens to these two witnesses in Revelation is actually going to happen to the church, that once they complete their testimony, follow me, once they complete their testimony, what is the testimony? This gospel shall be preached to all the earth, to every nation, that once they complete that, that the church will be dealt a fatal blow. And many in the world will rejoice. Ding dong, the church is finally dead. We've been trying to persecute it and kill it, and it will be dealt a fatal blow. The whole world will see it. People will celebrate it. The church will essentially be dead in the street for three and a half days. And then uh, what Revelation says will happen is that God will breathe the breath of life back into it, and it will come back to life and be taken to be with him. Now, this reminds me, really deep water for one second, of Ezekiel 37, because the Bible says the prophet stood and he was looking at a valley filled with dried bones, dead bones, a dead army. 
And uh, he's talking about the nation, the physical nation of Israel at that time, God's people in the Old Testament. And he says, I want you to prophesy to these dry bones that they might live again. And the prophet prophesies over these bones. The, the Bible says he sees this vision and these bones begin to shake and they stand up in army. The breath of God enters them. It feels so similar, doesn't it? To what we're reading about in Revelation. Again, the symbolism between the Old Testament and Revelation. And they will rise up to be a, a new army that has life back in it again. Now listen, when this happens in Revelation, I don't believe it's talking about the nation Israel and its physical boundaries as we know it today. Why? Because the nation of Israel that was symbolized in the Old Testament as the people of God has become a new nation that has no boundaries and it's every follower of God who has existed through the ages. How do I know this? Because 1 Peter 2.9 says, but you are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. You know what the encouragement is today? No matter what they do to my body, Jesus will raise me again. No matter what happens to me physically in persecution on this earth, I will reign with Christ Jesus. Death does not get the final say in my life or in the life of the church. Because even if I give up my body to persecution, I will rise again and I will be with Christ Jesus in eternity. This is the hope that we embrace as followers of Jesus. I do believe that before Christ returns, the gospel will be preached throughout the whole world to every nation, every people group. And when the church finishes its testimony, no matter how you interpret Revelation 7, what I just told you, that there will be an increase in persecution of the church, that there will be an apex of people being reached for Jesus and persecution against the church. And it's at that climax that Christ will return for his people. He will return for his church. And Matthew 24 tells us what it's going to look like. In verse 27, it says, For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Verse 31, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds. Every time you read the number four in Revelation, it's talking about the earth. He will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other and will be with him. I really think about it this way. Again, drawing on the symbolism of the Old Testament. One of the stories that maybe you were raised understanding from a young age was that the Israelites lived in Egypt, right? Sometimes we don't know how they got there. If you, if you don't know the full context, you just know that they were in slavery. And uh, they were in a physical Egypt under a ruler who at first was not heavy-handed, but then a new ruler came and he pressed down persecution on them. And out of their need for deliverance, God raised up a deliverer. This man's name was Moses in the Old Testament. But if you look at the similarities between Moses and Jesus, you can see that Moses was a picture of the Christ who would come. And so they're in physical slavery. A deliverer is raised up. He delivers them out of Egypt, and they enter into a wilderness. And for a long period of time, the Israelites, they wander through this wilderness. And what's the characteristic of of their relationship with God, they follow him and they turn away. They follow him and they're unfaithful. They follow him and then they go their own way. And God says, you may be unfaithful, but I will be faithful to you to the very end. That's the, that is the theme, right? If you don't understand the Old Testament, that is the theme of God's treatment towards his people. And then eventually, they come to the end of the wilderness 
and they cross into what's called the promised land, the land that God had given to his people that he had promised them. It was called Canaan. They had rejected it before. They didn't think, they didn't have the faith to believe that they could overcome the armies that lived there, that it, it could all be true. But they now, under the leadership of Joshua, Moses has passed. They go into Canaan and they come to a huge walled, fortified city called Jericho. They're delivered from Egypt. They've gone through the wilderness and now they're entering a new city. And what happens when they enter the city? The trumpet sounds seven times, the walls crumble down, and it's the initiation of the people of God getting the land that is their possession. That is a foretaste. It is a picture of the spiritual journey that every one of us is on today, that apart from Christ, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that we are in a state of of spiritual Egypt, that we have bondage, that we have sin in our lives that separates us from our Heavenly Father. But God, seeing our need, raised up a deliverer. One of my favorite passages of Scripture says, we were like the blind groping along a wall spiritually. We had no way to deliver ourselves. But God, in his righteousness, raised up his own right arm, and he worked salvation on his own to deliver us. He raised up a deliverer for us. And that's why we celebrate Jesus who came and he set his people free through his blood and sacrifice on a cross. He set us free from our own personal spiritual Egypt. And once he did that, we entered into the wilderness. What is the wilderness? It is this life that we're navigating where where we we are delivered by God. We are under the protection of God, but we are prone to unfaithfulness. We are prone to hurt. We are prone to persecution. And we are walking together through this wilderness of life right now, knowing that God has delivered us. He gave Jesus for us, but we're in the struggle in the middle, (laughs) on our way to the full promise of God, right? It's what all of us have in common. None of us have figured it out. We're all in the spiritual wilderness, moving towards the promise that God has for us. But I'm telling you, it will not be wilderness forever. Because if you read Revelation, the Bible says that one day when God has taken his people, there will be a new Jerusalem. There will be a new promised land, a new city that we'll enter into. And in that city, the glory of God will light the place. In that city, there's a tree that has leaves whose healing is for the nation. So there's no sickness or disease or tears or crying. And we will be delivered out of our wilderness into that city. And you know what the Bible tells us happens when the people of God walk into the new Jerusalem? The trumpet will sound seven times. Come on, did you catch it? The symbolism of what the Israelites went through in the Old Testament is prophetic. It speaks to the future. And do you know what happened to Israel? They received the promise of God. And when Revelation writes about the church, it's talking about the people of God who will at one point receive the full promise of God. Which begs the question, when is this all going to happen? And Jesus said in Matthew 24, 36, but concerning that day and that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven Not even the Son, Jesus Christ, but the Father only. It's like God knew that we would search 
for like, how does this line up? How does this all fit together? Are we at the end? How can I, I need, I need the security and the safety of knowing exactly where things are at so when Jesus comes back, I can go, called it. <laughs> but he says, no one will know the time or the hour. Are there signs that point to the time? Yes. Are there events in Revelation that will happen at that time? Yes, but it says no one will know the time or the hour, not even the Son, only the Father. And so what do we do in our wilderness? What do we do from now until then? And maybe you've heard these two thoughts, but I think they're worth repeating. We watch for his coming, and we live every day, knowing today might be the day where God rescues his people from our wilderness. That every day you wake up might be the day that God returns for his people. But then secondly, we also don't just huddle up and wait for that day and hope it hurries up. We're on mission and we do what God has called us to do, which is take this gospel of the kingdom to the ends of the earth. It's actually, it's interesting because one thing we don't really celebrate in the church anymore is like, and I'm talking about the global church in America, maybe, if I could like summarize it, is people who are called to be evangelists and just go out and to reach the world for Jesus. We don't always celebrate people leaving behind their comfortable life and saying, I'm going to be a missionary here or there. I'm going to take the Bible to this people group that has never heard the gospel before. But I believe that God is still calling people. I believe that God is still sending people. I believe above any other direction that you might hear from the voice of the Holy Spirit in your life is his direction that would help you to to partner with Jesus and bring people who are in the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. People have put all their hope in the kingdom of Babylon to now put their hope in the kingdom of God. That if you want to hear the voice of the Father, start praying that prayer, saying, God, help me endure persecution, but also use me to reach people and just watch what God might do. You know, this church has exploded over the last couple of years, and you could attribute that to all sorts of things like uh, location or uh, the worship or the preaching or this. You know why I believe this church has exploded? Because what is central to this church, the clue is in the name of Angel, and that is reaching people who don't know Jesus, getting on their level, bringing them into a relationship with the Father, and then discipling them to follow him and serve him. And I think God sees when that's our heart, when that's our intention, and he says, that is accomplishing my will on the earth. I can bless that. I'm for that. And there's all sorts of good churches, and I'm not ragging on anybody else, but I'm just saying, I think God honors that spirit and that heart in a church and in a people. What does it mean to occupy until God comes? It means that we take our journey out of Egypt, we proceed through our wilderness under the protection of God, though we know we are, we are subject to earthly harm, to earthly attack. We remain faithful while we live in the cesspit of this Babylonian culture. And we love people and desire to reach people for the name of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to look at the book of Revelation and and what John was begging those that he led in his churches to do. He was saying, don't give up the fight even when you get discouraged. I know you thought God was going to come back already and he hasn't, but he's still coming. He's saying, remain faithful even when these people over here believe that and they're trying to pressure you to do this, even though persecution is staring you down, remain faithful. Don't give up because Matthew 24, 13, the one who endures to the end will be saved. 
It's an exhortation above anything else and an encouragement to the church to not compromise or give in to the world system, even if you suffer or die. Why? Because these light and momentary troubles that you experience today are achieving for you an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. That God's reward far exceeds this wilderness. To remain faithful to him no matter what comes your way. I'm going to close and just read to you from Revelation 22, where the book is drawn to a conclusion. It says this, He said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. My goal for you today is that by hearing these words, you'd no longer be scared or afraid of what's going to happen or stick your head in the sand. But there would be life in your heart and in your spirit. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer do evil. Let the filthy be filthy. Let the righteous do right. And let the holy be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I just want to remind you that if you're a follower of Jesus, the things that you have done are under the grace of God, and your recompense, your reward will be for the righteous things that you've done. You don't have to fear the judgment of God because you've been forgiven by the grace of Jesus. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside the city are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. But I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. And so the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and the bride or the church, hearing all these things, say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, not for physical water, but for a spiritual drink, let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of this prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. And the response of God's people is amen. Come Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. The grace to endure persecution and to reach a world in need. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. To a church in the midst of the wilderness, let me just encourage you on because there is coming a day where as the lightning moves from the east to the west, 
God will return. And your faithfulness, your remaining in him, your staying consecrated to his word, even under immense pressure, he's gonna come and he's gonna bring his reward with him. And he's gonna repay you for the faithfulness that you exhibited in this life. It's not something to be afraid of. It's not something that should cause us to shake in fear. Why? Because we're in the hand of an almighty God and we are his church. And he says, even if it's dealt a fatal blow, I will raise it again. And it will stand, amen. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the promises of your word. God, help them to bear fruit in our lives today. God, I pray for your church that you would embolden us to endure with humility even in the face of persecution. And God, I pray that you would embolden us to take this gospel of Jesus to the ends of the earth. God, I even ask you right now, Lord, in in this service at this time to those listening to this message, Lord, that right now there would be people that you would call and that you would send out, that they wouldn't be content with the place where you have them, but there would be even right now a, a quickening in their heart of you saying, hey, I'm sending you. And you would call them so that every people group, every nation has the opportunity to hear this gospel. If there's anybody here today and you'd say, Pastor Josh, I've been a part of the kingdom of darkness, not the kingdom of light. I have put all my hope in this Babylon of this world, this fallen world system. And today I want to put my hope in the kingdom of God and I've not made that decision yet or I've been off track from it. If that's you, would you just lift your hand with mine? Say, I need Jesus right now. I want to be a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. If that's you, pray this way. Father, forgive me for the ways that I've missed the mark for following my own way. And God, I ask that today, Lord, I would surrender this worldly kingdom and become a part of your kingdom. Lord, as I surrender to you, God, let your Holy Spirit come and abide in my heart and in my soul and lead me and teach me and guide me. God, help me be a part of those who are your church, emboldened in persecution and to share my faith with others. We confess we need you today. Jesus, we believe that you are the way and the truth and the life, and we come to the Father through you. In Jesus' name.